You are listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science as part of our Shaping the Post-Covid World series, a digested version of our live online public events. Systemic Risk in Interconnected Financial Markets was recorded on Wednesday the 8th of December 2021. A full version of this event is available to download via the LSE Events website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome to this hybrid public event organized by the Department of Mathematics of the London School of Economics and Political Science. My name is Jan van den Heugel. I'm the head of the department. Speaker tonight is uh, Professor Lutkart Ferrat. Lutkart has been with us at the LSE in the department since 2010. So Lutkart's research is around the mathematics for uh, methods for assessing and managing systemic risks in financial markets. So it's my great pleasure to hand stage over to Lutka for her presentation on systemic risk in interconnected financial markets. So what is systemic risk? Um, systemic risk generally is concerned with the risk of the collapse of the entire financial system, or at least a large part of the financial system, with severe knock-on effects on the real economy. And uh, systemic risk essentially arises uh, from different types of interconnections in financial markets and um, uh, financial institutions are connected via various different channels. Um, So if you want to understand and measure and manage and ultimately mitigate systemic risk, then we really need to understand these interconnections. Okay. And uh, today I would like to show you how you can sort of use mathematical modeling uh, to model and understand these interconnections. So we have two recent crises which really showed the dangers of systemic risk. So the first one was the global financial crisis, which started in 2007. The COVID-19 pandemic is another big crisis. We are still in the middle of it. It is a very different type of crisis because it is a public health crisis. This is the cause of it. So even though these two crises are very different in terms of what the nature and the cause of these crises were, uh, there are still similarities in terms of they are all um, as bad as they are due to interconnections and amplification effects. Yeah. And now you can see this COVID-19 pandemic is essentially the first real world uh, stress test of the financial regulation that was put in place in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, yeah? Okay, but in both uh, both crises, obviously network effects played a major role in in the COVID, it's it's very obvious, yeah? Um, But in this talk, I will focus on the financial connections, yeah? And um, financial markets are highly uh, interconnected nowadays and um, connections can be of both types. They can be very direct. Uh, For example, if you borrow money from someone and you cannot repay this debt at some point, then this might bring other people into trouble. So this is sort of a direct relationship. But there are also indirect connections between um, financial institutions or market participants or consumers. For example, think about investors which invest in different assets in financial markets. Yeah. Um, so you see, uh, sometimes it's not immediately obvious whether two uh, participants are connected or not. Sometimes there's a direct contract between them. And sometimes it's going via various uh, rounds, essentially, until you realize these two are actually connected. Um, So then the question is, what are consequences of connections? First of all, there are all these, uh, the the risk from feedback effects. 
So the risk is that someone sort of triggers this domino and then it sort of starts falling. Uh, so the initial loss that can sort of run through the financial system. So these are sort of what we consider the negative uh, feedback effects in the system. And this is obviously what we are mainly concerned about. Yeah, this sort of loss cascades in financial systems. But then also, um, I want to point out that connections are not always a bad thing. Yeah, so connections can also lead to some sort of risk sharing and so on. So it's not always the case that removing a particular connection is always better from the risk management perspective. And then another important part is um, that there's not just feedback in financial networks, but there are also amplification effects. And this is really a problem. So if you have some connections between market participants, then obviously these connections can spread losses. This is already bad enough, but it could happen that these losses are actually amplified and becoming worse and worse and worse while they are sort of traveling along. Yeah. Okay, so then the question is, if we are concerned about these connections and um, the outcome for the financial system, how do we actually assess the resilience of a financial system? And um, a good tool for that, and that is also being used in practice, are stress tests. So what are stress tests? Stress tests are essentially an exercise where you want to um, check how resilient a selection of financial institutions are. So you think about an economic scenario. So you're thinking about um, plausible combination of factors such as unemployment rate, exchange rates, inflation, house prices, et cetera. So you sort of design an economic scenario, an adverse economic scenario. And then you, you, you ask essentially, what would happen to my financial institutions if that was now the economic situation? And um, then you essentially model and uh, get an answer what the outcome of this stress testing exercise would be. The important thing about this scenario is it's not a forecasting exercise. Yeah, you're just looking at a plausible combination. So these stress tests are really a key tool for financial regulators and um, their use and also their nature has changed significantly since the global financial crisis. So they existed prior to 2007, but since then, um, they have now been used on a regular scale. Um, essentially, all major regulators conduct these re uh, stress tests regularly. For example, in the UK, the Bank of England does an annual stress test of the major banks. And also the way um, the stress tests are designed, there's now this move from a micro to a macro prudential approach to stress testing. So what does it mean? This is essentially the lesson learned also from the, financial, from the uh, global financial crisis. Um, if you take this micropotential perspective, then you're looking at an individual institution and you ask, what is the outcome of this individual institution in this uh, adverse economic scenario? Yeah, And you look at this on a sort of institution ba uh, basis. But then if you take this macropotential view, you look at this institution in the context of other institutions and feedback and amplification effects that come from other institutions. Yeah. And um, so therefore, there's really a change in the modeling. And I think this is the part where sort of really mathematical modeling can make a major contribution. And but then even if you have these new models, the question is obviously, what kind of scenario do you actually consider? And so and here it's important that one also considers new types of scenarios. And one important message here I want to give is that you cannot just rely on historical data. Yeah, if you do financial stress testing, because as, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic has shown, if you just relied on historical data, you would not have sort of considered a pandemic in, in a stress test. 
So other examples for new type of scenarios are climate change and potential consequences of climate change. Yeah. And I think this is also an, uh, an area where mathematical modeling can be really helpful um, because you're trying to understand outcomes um, under certain shock scenarios that you have not seen before. So you cannot rely on what you've observed historically. So you need to simulate forward. Yeah, you need some models to understand what might happen. But now the question is, how do we model this kind of macro potential perspective? How can we model loss cascades in financial networks? I want to start with a, um, a very uh, small network example. So I thought we just look at three firms. So this is a very uh, simple financial network. Firm one has a payment obligation of three to firm two, and firm two has a payment obligation of two to firm three. So now we can first look at this network and try to understand, are there any fundamental defaults in this network? So, and you see firm one is lucky because it has access to a bag of money, <laughs> some cash. And I assume there's five pounds there in this bag of money and it has to make a payment of three. So that's fine. It can make this payment. So certainly no fundamental default. If you check firm two, in theory, it should get three and it has to pay two. So this is also not a fundamental default. It can make this payment in the perfect world. Firm three does not have any payment obligations. So firm three can never default no matter what happens. So you see, this is a situation where actually all payments can be made and there are no defaults. So let's see what happens if we make one change. I make this bag of money smaller. There's only one pound of cash left in it. So now if you check whether firm one is a fundamental default, you see now, now it is actually a fundamental default. It only has this one pound and it has to pay three, yeah? The only difference is now one fundamental default. So of firm one, let's see what the consequences are of this fundamental default. So firm one only has this one pound in cash. So the maximum it can pay is this one pound that it can pass to firm two. And now firm two only has one pound and can only make a payment of one pound to firm three. So you see firm two now is actually also now in default because it cannot pay its debt in full. And now firm two, this is an example of a contagious default. Yeah, so you see this is something that could happen once there is a fundamental default in the system, this can have knock-on effect. The important thing to note here is also I didn't change the actual network structure, the connections between the firms here. I only made the money back smaller. Yeah. So this is important to consider. So the network is obviously a very important input in this analysis, but it's not the only quantity. But this was still a very good situation because the assumption was that there weren't any frictions in case of default. So the assumption was if you default, you can just pay what you have and pass it on to your counterparty. So in practice, that's not the case. If you default, there are bankruptcy costs. Also, your money back might actually not be so liquid. Uh, and so this can be modeled by in introducing um, bankruptcy costs. And now I'm making the assumption that every time there's a default, you can only use half of your resources. And if you do that, then you see firm one only has this bag of one, so it pays one half. And then firm two, again, still suffers a contagious default and now pays even less. It pays one half of one half, one quarter to firm three. So you see, this is now an example where losses are not just transmitted, but amplified. So, but this was still a setting where you could work out in your head <laughs> what everyone pays. So now I want to make it a bit more complicated and look at circular payment obligations. So the picture on the left 
is the same network that we have just considered, but I included one more edge, the edge from firm three to firm one, which has a payment obligation of one. Now you might ask, what is the effect of adding this one additional edge to the system? It turns out firm one remains a fundamental default. Yeah, it still gets this one now from firm, firm three, but it's not enough to make the full payments of three to firm two. But now the good thing is, since firm two now receives two, firm two is no longer a contagious default. Yeah, um, so firm two is now surviving in this situation, this additional edge was a good thing for firm two. Um, so let's see what happens now if we consider the same network with bankruptcy costs. Now the situation is becoming a bit more complicated and you might not be able to compute this immediately in your head. But the assumption is now you're again just paying out um, half of um, what you have. Yeah? And what you see now is in this situation, actually everyone now defaults. If you now you added this additional edge, you have bankruptcy cost, and this is now contagion knocked out everybody. So what you see here is the network is the same in both cases, but the contagion mechanism is different. On the left-hand side, we assumed no bankruptcy costs. On the right-hand side, we assumed bankruptcy costs, and the outcome for the system is very different. In these examples I showed you, this contagion or loss cascade was triggered by the default of a counterparty. So the question is, does contagion only start by the default from the default of a counterparty or can contagion start earlier? And the answer is contagion can actually start earlier. During the global financial crisis, only about one third of the losses attributed to counterparty credit risk were due to actual defaults. So um, there was a lot of marking to markets going on um, that uh, essentially made this, started this uh, contagion. And uh, this uh, contagion that is tri uh, triggered prior to the default of an institution can also be captured in a network model. Another example um, for a contagion mechanism that starts prior to the default event is fire sales. Yeah? Um, so um, investors, which might get into trouble for whatever reasons, um, they start selling assets. Yeah? And if they sell them in big quantities, there's a decline in prices. And then everyone who is sort of uh, holds these positions is getting into trouble. Okay, and then um, there is another channel of risk in financial markets, and this is associated to liquidity risk. Yeah, And this is also plays a major role when you are looking and trying to understand how resilient financial markets are. So this was also already a problem during the global financial crisis, but now during COVID-19, um, one has really also seen again um, the risks that arise from uh, liquidity needs. And you can also use now network models to model this supply of liquidity. Similarly, how you can model sort of contagion um, in, in payment systems. You can also uh, look at the access to short-term funding. Now I want to show you um, a bit um, how you can sort of mathematically try to work out what an equilibrium in such a contagion model would be. Yeah? You have seen we had these um, payment chains initially where you could just you start with your money back and you can just work out step by step who is paying what. Yeah? Um, but if you have these circular structures and so on, then it's becoming complicated. Um, is there some sort of equilibrium in these uh, systems? And if there is one, how do you actually compute it? Um, so here I want to give you an example of a network of payment obligations, and this it can represent different things. Here I, um, I define a function phi, and this function now 
returns the difference between assets and liabilities. So a bit it returns for a given, the input is the net worth of an institution and for a given net worth of an institution, it returns the difference of what you have and what you have to pay. Phi returns an n-dimensional vector where n is the number of institutions in the system. And the input E, this stands for equity, is the net worth of an institution and you ask, given the net worth of all the institutions in the system, what is your own net worth? Yeah, so this is what phi i returns. So if you look at this formula, you see, um, if you start at the very end, we have li bar, yeah? So this is, in my notation, what i needs to pay. So this is the total payment obligations of note i. And the question is, so this is what it has to pay. The question is, what does i have? to make these payments. BI is the cash that node I has. So it can use the cash to make the payments LI bar, yeah? But in usually it has a bit more. It, it has the cash and it has payments from other institutions. So by LJI, I denote the nominal payment obligation of node J to node I. The question is, does it actually pay that in equilibrium? And it turns out this will depend now on this orange box. <laughs> this orange box is, contains a function V and this function V returns a number in zero one. So if it, this function V returns the number one, then you're just multiplying the nominal payment obligations by one. This means LJI actually pays what it should yeah, to I. But if this orange box is a value less than one, then there is some loss going on on this edge. So what we're then ultimately trying to compute is we're trying to find a fixed point of this function phi. So this is essentially the equilibrium. Given everyone's net worth, what is my net worth? Or if you think differently, given what everyone else pays, what can I pay? Uh, and this can be captured um, by computing a fixed point here of this function phi. So you're trying to find a vector E star um, that solves E stars equal to phi of E star. So this is the fixed point equation, and this gives you the equilibrium in this network model. Yeah, And um, you can ask, does this um, fixed point exist? This is a valid question. Yeah, um, This will depend uh, very much on this function V here that is modeling the loss along these edges. Um, but there you can come up with many examples where it does exist. And then the next question, for example, would be, um, is it unique? <laughs> it turns out there are many interesting contagion models where the solution is not unique, where you can have several equilibria in this network. So then the question is, which ones are you actually interested in? And it turns out that for many examples, you can provide an ordering result in the sense that there's the greatest and the least fixed point, yeah? And you can use them to, uh, to make your analysis, to do your analysis essentially. And then ultimately you ask, okay, what is then the payment from J to I? The nominal payment is LJI. This is what J should pay to I, but what it does pay to I is LJI multiplied by this orange box. And in this orange box, this is the function V that contains the fixed point E star. Yeah, so this essentially ensures that everything um, adds up in this equilibrium. And this tells you sort of the outcome of this contagion process. Um, so you can now use this function V to model different types of contagion processes. Um, 
Okay, so now I've uh, told you that you can use network models, yeah, to um, quantify these contagion effects. And um, now the question is, do you actually observe the underlying network? Yeah. Now you have your uh, fancy mathematical model, um, which has an as an input the network. You run your contagion process over it. Um, you determine what the equilibrium is, uh, whether it's unique and so on, how you compute it and so on. But what if this network is not observable? What can you do? And in practice, this is really a problem. Yeah, uh, financial regulators might know a lot about institutions within their jurisdiction, but on a sort of wider global scale, um, they might not have this information. So the question is, which information is available and how would you be able to reconstruct a financial network from partial information? So I want to give you one example. So um, you see a network firm one has a payment obligation of one to firm three and firm uh, two, sorry, and firm two has a payment obligation of three to firm one. Yes. And we can write this as a matrix where again, um, LIJ denotes the liability from I to J. And in this uh, setting, since these are payment obligations, there are zeros on the diagonal. Yeah, so because you don't have payment obligations to yourself. Okay. And then we have the weight of one is here the payment obligation from one to two, and the weight of three is the payment obligation from two to one. So let's compute the row and column sums of this matrix. We can do that. You sum up all the entries in this row. And similarly, you can compute the column sums as well. So why are we interested in these row and column sums of the matrix? Because this is information that is very often available. So if you sum up the entries in the row, you have the total liabilities of this financial institution. If you sum up the column, you have the total assets of this institution. So and this is information that is available because they have to publish this information as part of their balance sheet. So at least on a quarterly uh, basis, you know this. So the question is now, suppose you only know the row and column sums. Can you reconstruct the network if I only give you the row and column sums? So in this example, the question is, can you tell me what L12 is and L21 if I give you the row and column sums? And the answer is yes, you will be able to. But there's exactly one matrix that is consistent with the row and column sums. So then you can do stress testing even under partial information here. Yeah? And um, I think that's that's a really nice thing. So, so you should not say I'm not looking at the network because I don't observe it, but then you can use statistical tools. Okay, so to conclude, um, I hope I could uh, sort of illustrate a bit that uh, network models are really powerful tools for assessing systemic risk. You can use them to capture very different types of contagion. Yeah, You can use also network models to assess um, consequences of policy interventions. Yeah, If you make changes to the market mechanisms, what is the outcome? And you can even use these network models under partial information. And the key application in practice really is, I would say, financial stress testing. So, and I think here you can really use mathematical models to understand how contagion can spread and what is the equilibrium, what is the final outcome. Uh, you can make a sort of rigorous statements of which situations are better than others and so on, and how um, financial regulation changes the behavior. So I hope I could give you the sort of mathematical perspective on systemic risk a bit. And this is obviously a very interdisciplinary field. There's many open questions for the students in the room. I think it's an exciting area for further research. And um, there's also a lot uh, going on in other areas, not just in mathematics. And you can see also more, for example, in the Systemic Risk Center at LSE and so on, looking at different types of questions of modeling uh, systemic risk. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. 
You can find our latest events via our Twitter at LSE Public Events and like our Facebook page at LSEPS. Alternatively, you can sign up to our newsletter via our website www.lse.ac.uk forward slash events.